You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on your favorite listening platform. I am Matt, the co-founder of Occupier, host of The Fully Occupied Show. Uh, today's episode is with Ethan Chernofsky. He's the Senior Vice President of Marketing for Placer.ai. Uh, Ethan and I talk a lot about how retailers and retail investors can use analytics and data to make better decisions for not only store locations, but how they connect with their audiences. Uh, Ethan's got a lot of energy around this space. Um, I think that uh, the trends that he's seeing line up pretty well with the trends that we're seeing here at Occupier. Um, so make sure you listen to the part where we start talking a little bit about what the future of retail holds. Enjoy this episode. Thanks. Ethan, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, where are you calling in from today? So you are catching me in, uh, in sunny Tel Aviv. Nice. Good summer over there? I mean, is it, is it ever a bad summer when you're near the beach? No. No. Life is good. Life is good. Awesome. Well, tell us a little about, about yourself. So I lead marketing for, for Placer. I, uh, Placer is a location analytics company. Kind of very simply, people vote with their feet. We show you how they vote to retail locations across the country. And I get to spend my days trying to figure out how to tell really cool stories and kind of analyze the world of retail through the data we provide. Nice. Um, specifically, are you providing data to retailers, retail owners, developers, all of the above? What, who's kind of the core customer base? So I think it started with like kind of retail real estate. That was the first market where they kind of had the aha moment and really helped guide the product. But the cool thing about data is it very organically leads from like one use case to the next. So even within retail real estate, you'll go from, you know, you're working with the landlord, but then the broker's working to fill the space for the landlord. But then there's the broker for the tenant. The tenant's seeing it. The tenant starts using it. All of a sudden, a different department with the tenant's like, hey, this data's interesting. What can I do with it? And it has this kind of very natural, organic spread to it, which is really fun because you, you kind of are always on edge of where else could this be taken? How, what other problems could this solve? Which I think the, kind of the intellectually stimulating piece of a product like that is the constant search of like new puzzles to solve. Yeah, I think um, you hit the nail on the head. There's so many stakeholders in the in the real estate space, whether it's just like trying to get a lease deal done or buy a property, that each one of those constituents has some reliance on a source of data or multiple sorts of data. Um, and if you can if you can provide value to all of them with one platform, that's even that's even more powerful. Yeah, that's what we're working on, man. We're trying. Nice. Um, we have, I mean, at Occupier here, we have a large contingent of retail customers. A lot of them have grown up as, you know, direct-to-consumer online brands and then branched off into the brick-and-mortar world. Is that a contingent in kind of like your world that you see um, using your data and analytics? Yeah, definitely. I think what's interesting about that audience is you get to hit them as they're starting their, their physical journey, but... As opposed to, I mean, think about like any kind of fill-in-the-blank large retailer that started 10, 20, 30 years ago. 
they were doing brick and mortar for a long time, shifted to Omni, had data in Omni, are now trying to figure out what the data looks like in, in kind of physical retail. Whereas for, for a lot of these digitally natives or brands that were doing heavy direct to consumer and now are looking to own their physical retail presence, they're coming with an expectation of data from the start. So everything from, you know, when they look at something like site selection, they're not saying, hey, just where do I go to sell product? They're saying, where do I go to sell product? Grab a lot of kind of impressions and new eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, give prospective customers the chance to touch and feel products, knowing that they might not buy it in the store, or they might buy it online later. Uh, figure out how do I use that store for, as a distribution center? How do I bring down my cost of returns? Because if they were online only, they know how significant that cost is for them. And so the, they're thinking so much more broadly about the value that a physical space brings them from day one. So it's really exciting to be part of that journey with them because they're, they're coming with a built-in level of sophistication that you wouldn't normally sus- expect from such a small company or from such a small company physical footprint-wise. Yeah, or just generally a company that is used to only selling from brick and mortar, right? Because like they have this digitally native mindset, which is like, we got to find customers however we can get eyeballs on social channels, on our website, on Amazon, on whatever. And why would we not want to just think of the brick and mortar real estate as an extension of our, our channels? I mean, I think you, you nailed it on the head. Cause like, what's the, when we're getting, when we talk about something like our omni-channel retail, right? We were, we were speaking with someone maybe a few months ago, we were like, one of the big trends that we're seeing is omni-channel. He's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. We've been talking about this for two decades. It's like, yeah, but who's really been doing it? Who's a great omni-channel retailer? You can like count them on one hand. Doing online and offline doesn't mean you're doing omni. Doing those mm-hmm. things together is really rare. And so when you come in with the recognition of like, hey, I want to be in this mall, if, even if I don't sell a product, just the eyeballs it gives me within that audience, the number of visitors it gets, the people I'm going to be standing next to, what it does for my brand, that's already value because they're thinking about, hey, what's my cost for a visitor to my website via Facebook or Twitter or wherever else? There is so much value that they appreciate that many traditional brick-and-mortar retailers, they just weren't built as this is the exciting thing. It was sales per square foot. Mm-hmm. and. Even those groups are, are going through that kind of uh, evolution of recognizing these other values. But for the digitally natives, it's like built in. Yeah. Yeah, this might be like, I don't know if there's, I don't have any data to back up this trend, but you know how you've seen like the shrinking store footprints? So like Sephora has like rolled out like a, like a little, like a micro store like concept. You, you look at targets, targets are now becoming urban and being much smaller where their inventory isn't as high their rent is probably lower because they're smaller footprints. So they're lower cost locations, but they can't really do as much for the consumer as like your big target. Yeah. But they're in like high traffic, like high visibility locations. Yeah. I mean, like I have, if, if you can have like a, a man crush on a retailer, I have a man crush on target. And I think part of the reason is the calculations that they make, you kind of see it when you look at the data. They've, massive kind of super targets in certain areas where they can kind of maximize that space. But in those kind of more expensive real estate areas, they have a smaller footprint, but they're really focused on merchandising per location. They also have a really, really deep and nuanced understanding of who their customer is. We think about retail more broadly, it's, there's this kind of narrative, and I think it's largely correct, of like the bifurcation of retail, right? There's luxury, there's value, 
and then nothing else mattered. Like, Target doesn't fit that narrative. Like They sit in the middle. But what Target recognizes is that I'm willing to spend on Disney products, and I'm willing to spend on an iPhone, but I want to save money on socks. And yep. that, that is the kind of nuance that allows them to take advantage of all these opportunities. Yep. Let's dig into the, the actual kind of product a little bit. So we're talking conceptually about how these retailers think and use the data, but like what, talk a little bit about some of the data that you guys provide. Give a couple of use cases for it from like the, the retailer's perspective. Yeah. So let's, I mean, let's think about like life cycle wise, right? I'm a retailer and I want to open up a new location. Where do I put it up? Who are the ideal co-tenants? What is this shopping center? Are visits on the rise? Are they on the decline? If they're on the decline, can I reverse that decline? When I go to that space, am I cannibalizing another location, right? When I launch that store, how are the visits doing? Is there a correlation between my online visits from that area to my offline visits? Am I recognizing that the trade area I'm pulling into from that shopping center, there's actually an area really nearby that I'm not marketing to as effectively. Can I recognize that and focus my acquisition marketing there as my retention marketing is the trade area I'm already existing within? So it's, what's, what we think is really impressive is, or important is that we can follow the retailer through that whole life cycle. So you launch a store, you wanna maximize the operations of the store, you wanna do competitive intelligence, you can benchmark your performance, you wanna understand as it's succeeding, what are the factors that really drove its success? Like why did this store work so well? Is it the demographic profile that I had originally imagined? Are there other factors? Is it proximity to kind of office? Is it, like what are the elements that are really driving that success? Even something as simple as like, hey, what's my distance to my core audience? So is this a good buy online, pick up in store location? Is this a place where I can kind of maximize as a distribution hub? So what we wanna try and do for retailers is help them think through throughout the entire process of that store, even to the extent where I'm saying, all right, I have 100 locations and I wanna actually drop 10 and add a new 10. I don't wanna go to 110, I wanna keep it at 100, but there's, I wanna drop, turn my 10 lowest performers. Which 10? If I drop that one, which actually isn't one of my lowest performers, but can I, grab that, can I grab that audience in a different nearby location? Can I merchandise better to these stores? Can I understand the difference per location and what strategies will work in store? So I think all these elements are, are things we're thinking of when we work with retailers of how can we provide you value throughout the whole process of what you're doing in terms of physical stores. Yep. And then talk a little bit about the methods you use to gather the data. I understand that there's like anonymous like location intelligence data that you guys are tracking over like billions of people worldwide. Is that accurate? So unfortunately, it's not because it's U.S. only. <laughs> so U.S. only. I mean, okay, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's more like uh, we, we see tens of millions of devices, but we see all de-identified aggregate data. And then what we do is we run machine learning and AI algorithms on top to make estimations on retail visits. And what that allows us to do is to be as accurate as possible while being as privacy-centric as possible. And that's the balance we're really looking to find because that means we're going to have the longevity to be with our customers over the long haul. And so there's this ongoing, really interesting process of identifying the retailers to work with. And I think a big piece of it for us was when they saw the accuracy, it was like, you know, kind of a trigger of, oh, this is something we should probably get involved in. And I think the interesting thing about 
being still a fairly young company, we launched our product in late November, December 2018, is we don't, we still have a big vision of where this is going. Like we're certainly not content with what we've created. And so our work with our, the work we are doing with our current retail customers is as much on identifying what the next step should be as it is on helping them maximize what already exists. Yep. Makes a ton of sense. Um, let's talk broad stroke trends here. Cause I would imagine the data that you're gathering is pretty powerful when you apply it across the entire retail sector. Um, here at occupier, we track trends in terms of deal execution proposals generated by our customers. And we actually saw a 15% decrease in deal execution from the, the second half of uh, 2022 to the first half of 2023. Don't really know what to make of that yet, but what we have seen in the first half of 2023 is a 30% increase in proposals generated on new spaces uh, on behalf of retailers. Wow. So if I were to try to make sense of that, I would think, well, you know, maybe there was kind of just like a lull at the end of the last year. Um, people came out of COVID really, really hot, started gobbling up a lot of space that kind of leveled off for a little bit. And then, you know, we slowed down a little bit in 2023 because of, you know, macroeconomic issues, but there's a lot of pent up demand for potential retail space coming with 30% increase in proposals, um, taking. So I would, I would be interested in how that maybe matches up to what you guys are seeing or just broad strokes, like what some of the trends are that you guys are seeing. So I think there's, there's two pieces to that puzzle that are really interesting. The first is, and this is something we've been talking about since 20, late 2019, which is there is a growing long tail of retail and a growing diversification within retail spaces. So think about the mall or shopping center five, six years ago. It didn't have an industrious in it. It certainly didn't have like a pickleball court. <laughs> it didn't have as much restaurant and experience, and it had more retail and beauty. But we're seeing that thin out. And then add to that, we already discussed, the DNBs that are coming up. And most of these are not 200 locations. It's 5, 10, 20, 30, 50. You know what I mean? It's not that huge number yet. So you have this growing long tail. More things that are being, that are taking up space. So newer types of verticals yeah. like medical, med tail, you know, whatever you want to call it. Oh, I, I, got, a, I got one for you that I just learned the other yeah. day on, on the show is entertainment. Oh, eater! T I know. I also looked at that the first time we wrote about it. I was like, "This is a typo," but um, <laughs> it's it's apparently it's not. Um, I don't. I I'm entertained by food. I don't need anybody to do anything yeah. other than give me food. I like. Just give me the but food. I'm, <laughs> that's 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 entertainment to me. But I, I think you have this kind of broad thing. So there's so much more competition for fewer spaces. So the fact that you're seeing like more proposals. And one of the things we're hearing anecdotally from players in the space is there's just not enough retail space. And so their competition for those spaces is, I think, going up, which is really cool. Yeah, we've heard the same thing from people that we've interviewed on the show. It's just like all of this, this adaptive reuse of retail spaces. You brought up pickleball. Like all these pickleball brand concepts are rolling out because you have vacant mall spaces or you even have vacant you know, warehouse spaces that are becoming retail. So there is a lot of... Um, there's there's a lack of supply for good retail space, I guess is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I don't think it's going to get much better, which is good for the landlords. Yeah, as, as a consumer um, yourself, like what are the, some of the mo more trends, uh, concepts that you're kind of excited about? Um, so I, I'm really excited about the idea of work from home 
and hybrid work and what that means for retail and restaurants. I'm really excited about what that means for like the 9 a.m. grocery visit on a Tuesday morning when hey, I didn't need to commute in. So I got started at eight. I worked for an hour. And I'm going to pop over to the grocery store when it's quiet. And now I'm really going to go through my list because it's not 630 on a Wednesday when I've had a long day. and I'm just going to order fast food anyway because I'm too tired to deal with it. I'm really interested in the idea of like a 3 p.m. visit to my local coffee shop because I've been working at home all day and I'm like, I just need to get out of my own house and get somewhere else. What does that mean? With like, right, it's the coffee, the croissant. At the time, they weren't really expecting to sell that coffee and croissant or as many of them. I like the, I'm really excited about the idea of like the creativity in retail. So the embracing of pop-ups, of short-term leases, of kind of these experiential elements to retail that might not be there six months or a good test if you want to be there from six months from now. I really love the idea of experience as opposed to just focusing on experiential. So think about like Ulta. I mean, my wife was a makeup artist when we were in college. For every technology of like, hey, see how this makeup would look on your skin tone. She's like, no, no, you have to go and see it. You have to try the thing out. It's just different. And so retailers that are like, you're coming to my store because my store is part of the buying experience. And so it's not like a surprise that those are the ones that are doing better and how more brands are kind of embracing elements of that. And I think there's something really interesting there that, I, you know, it's like widely applicable. And yeah. I think the, the last thing is like, I'm really excited about the concept of retail media for a lot of the reasons we discussed. I love the idea that retailers say our space is valuable. Right? There's something exciting about the, we, the fact that we got you here is already a success like, because we have developed a relationship with you that others can tap into, and the value that that's generating I think is really cool. Yeah, there's kind of a couple of things that you could take out of that is the work-from-home revolution, which is completely changing the, basically the hours that retailers have uh, an audience, right? Like, mm -hmm. like you said, like... Usually, 9 a.m. was the time when grandma goes grocery shopping because she doesn't have anything else to do, which is why it's so enjoyable because there's nobody in the store, right? Yeah. Um, I'm the same way. Like, in the heart of COVID, I was I would do the same thing. I would get up, get my workout in, work for a little bit. The kids would get on their iPads for school or something, and I would go to the grocery store and spend probably half as much time there as I needed. But I was so much more focused because it was like, oh, like, it's not a madhouse in here. It's fully stocked. And it's a little bit of a break from the day. And then same thing, like in the afternoon, it's like, all right, my kids are home from school. They're in my hair if I had it. And then we would, you know, take them, I don't know, whatever, get a, get an ice cream or something. So like yeah. the whole dynamic changed of like how people actually access retail. That's one thing that I think is not going to go away. Cause I don't think everyone's going to be forced back into the office anytime soon. And then yep. Yeah. Let me cut you off there for one second. Cause I think one of the things that's really interesting there, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head is we think about this always. One of the things we hear very often is, look, the, the, you, the retailer needs to be where the consumer wants them to be on the channel they want to be met on. Right? And true, right? Like, if that's a true or false statement, you're right. But retailers can incentivize behaviors that work as a win-win. So if I'm a grocery store and I get a larger basket out of you because you visited at 9 a.m. when you had, when it's quieter and it's better, what am I doing to tell Matt, come back again next week in the morning and you'll get this, right? Because it's better for me also. 
And yep. I think one of the cool things we saw throughout the pandemic and even the recovery, like my favorite moment of this was, it was October 2021, when the biggest retailers in the world are dealing with massive supply chain issues. And they were basically like, world, if you want your presents on time for Christmas, shop early, otherwise we can't guarantee you're gonna get it. And people shopped early. They communicated right. something clearly. The audiences, a big chunk of the audience, it really resonated for, and they acted. Did everyone? No, of course not. Did some people say, screw it, it's fine, I can deal with it the way it was? Absolutely. But they were able to get a message across and find a win-win with the consumer, and that's the real goal. So I think sometimes the pursuit of service of the customer actually blocks the thinking of, is there a better way for both of us? Yep. Yeah, it's completely changed the dynamic. Um, the other thing I was going to say was, um, like the experience thing, you mentioned Ulta or whatever. I was talking to one of my colleagues here, and she's 20-something um, woman living here in Boston, and she was talking about her experience at a Glossier store. Mm -hmm. And she walked down Newberry Street, and here in Boston, there was literally a line out the door. Wow. And you walk in the store and there's there's no like high shelves or anything everything is meant for the person to try things out so it seems like they don't really care if you buy anything right now it's like you want to come check out our products or whatever and you want to go back to our website and buy them that's fine and they literally had a line out the door wow. for people to do that because i would imagine and never worn makeup that to your point like you you got to try it out to like figure out how it looks I'm sure there's going to be some AI company that comes out and changes all of that, but like you, if you actually, what they're selling is that experience of doing that rather than a product. And I, that's I shout compelling. out this brand. I shout out this brand way too much, but there's a brand called True Classic, and they sell T-shirts, and it's literally intended for. And man, I'm putting us both in the same category on this, but like guys like us, we're dads. We're trying to stay in shape. We have better features, less good features. And the whole idea of the shirt is like, it fits more tightly around the arms and chest and a little bit more loose around like the stomach. Great, right? Love the brand. They're opening up stores. I'm like, if that, that store should only be focused around helping me find my ideal size. Because if I, even if I buy only one shirt, if I find the right size, I'm gonna keep on purchasing over time. Oh, yeah. So understanding that like, what you're attempting to achieve with the location is so important. There's a woman named Melissa Gonzalez who, I love and brilliant on the whole art of pop-ups. And she talks about this all the time. Like, what are you attempting to gain out of a physical location? Whether it's temporary or long-term, trying on, finding fit, falling in love with the brand, those are very good reasons. And they allow you to have a very different type of store experience. Totally, yeah. It's kind of crazy how long it's taken for people to realize this, but hey, whatever. <laughs> um, fascinating stuff, dude. Uh, is there anything that you... Any other kind of things we should know about Placer that you'd like to share here? I mean, I feel like it's the greatest company in the world. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, think, I think the big thing is it's a, it's a really, it's, I, I am, like, I'm sure you feel similarly about Occupier. It's very cool to be in a empowerment product. And it's a product, it really is what for us is a data company. We are giving you the tools so that you can make better decisions, but it's really how do we give you a, a new input that you didn't necessarily have before or a better input than you had before. I think the ability to kind of empower really smart people is a very exciting thing to be a part of and kind of enables a different type of par partnership and relationship as a tech company. And for us, that's, that's really exciting and enjoyable. Cool. Good stuff, Ethan. Let's do some rapid fire questions. Let's do it. 
put you on the hot seat here. Okay, question number one. What's your absolute favorite travel destination? All right. I refuse. I'm giving you two because I'm giving you the dad answer and I'm giving you the husband answer. Okay. It's me and my wife. We're going to the Maldives. It's me and my wife and our children, and it's either Vietnam or Bali. All of them sound pretty incredible. I'm, I mean, you got to check off the boxes. you got to check out the boxes. You know. I haven't checked any of those boxes, but i got to do it. One day, one day. All right, next question. Um, we talked a lot about food on this podcast, but are you a takeout or a cook at home? Go out to dinner. Then cook at home. Then take takeouts. Last place for me. Gotcha. Yep. I'm gonna cook at home. Go out to dinner. Then takeout. That's my that's my order. Who am I going out to dinner with? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> like, if I feel like I I, is, I I mean we would have a great time going out to dinner. I don't no. know that we should do takeout together yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think we need a Netflix and chill. <laughs> One day. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, Question three. What is your favorite way to relax? So we kind of cheated. We talked about this before. For me, it's watching kind of middle of football season, watching watching a game. What's your team? I'm a a huge Dolphins fan. So I'm enjoying our temporary little run of moment in time while while it lasts. Dolphins. All right. Well, let's go to a... Um, let's hope he stays healthy this year. Um, if you could be an expert in anything, question number four, what would it be? Uh, human decision-making. I did my master's thesis in this. I'm fascinated by like, there's kind of schools of thought. There's the rational school and the, the, uh, and the kind of, uh, the, the cognitive school. And so for me, working on bridges between those two, I'd love to be an expert in. Sounds like you are actually. (laughs) One day, one day. All right. This is our last question, which is our standard, um, who, who, who do you think would be good guests on the show? One or two names. Ooh, let's go. I, Melissa Gonzalez, who I think is, is really brilliant, really kind of the expert in the, in the world of like pop-ups. And um, I'll go one. We did, a, we did a webinar with our good friend uh, Jesse Michael from JLL. He does uh, innovation services for JLL. He's also a really great one. Oh, yeah. I know Jesse. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Well, Ethan, it's been awesome having you on the show, man. Um, if people wanted to find you or learn more about Placer, how would they do that? So you can visit us at Placer.ai. We've got a free version of our premium product that we'd love you to check out. I, you can find me at Ethan at Placer.ai or on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks, Ethan. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Matt. Really appreciate doing this.